0: And we are starting a new series just for the month of January that I'm calling Worship 101. <laughs> and the big idea behind this sermon series is just asking the question, why, why do we do what we do on a Sunday morning? You know, what, what should you expect when you come to church on Sunday uh, as we gather together uh, as God's people? Because I know normally the thing to do in January is to talk about how, are, how we're going to make better spiritual resolutions, right? Read the Bible, get, actually get past Leviticus this year, <laughs> uh, pray more, you know, just, just be more disciplined, be better in, in all the different ways. And, and I just want to ask the question, how do we become, quote-unquote, better at corporate worship, at gathered worship? How do, we, um, how do we prepare ourselves to come on a Sunday morning to do what we say we do, which is meet with the Lord? You know, as Presbyterians, we don't talk about it very often. That's the, our Pentecostal brother and sisters are much more in your face about it. That when you come to church, you should expect the Lord to show up and do great things. And I want to argue that the the way we do things, that's that's we believe the same thing. We just don't talk about it as as loudly or as in your face. I mean that when we come, we fully do expect God to to speak through His Word, through the songs, through one another through the fellowship, through the preaching of the gospel, through seeing the gospel. Um, And so this this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the four headings. You can see it in your bulletin that God summons us, God seeks us, he speaks to us, and he sends us. And that's what we're doing. And this is why I want to try and plant the seed in your head that when we come together every week, we are retelling the story of the gospel that God has called us, He's shown us who he is, he's called us to repentance, to to confess our sin, he's forgiven us, he shows us who he is through the sermon uh, and through the sacraments, and then he sends us out as his witnesses. And we get to reenact this mysterious drama every week as we come together and experience the Lord's presence. And so my prayer is that it'll just shape our expectations, that it'll raise them or or turn turn them on, wake them up because I need it. It's so easy to come each week and just go through the motions and to, uh, and to, for, to really believe what, what we say we believe. And so let's read it, and then we'll, we'll look at the passage. It's First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is God's word. It says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would come and teach us, uh, that you would open our eyes to see that we, right here, right now, are sitting in your light uh, because you are here. And so we we confess we need help to see you as you are, so show us Jesus, who is the exact radiance of your your glory and your nature, and that we might um, trust in your grace more fully. Don't leave us alone, even as we talk about you this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. That's okay. If you didn't do that, I was just going to grab here the whole service, just looking for it, so (laughs) thanks, Fred. (laughs) Well, here's what we're doing. you know, The big idea that I want to convince you is that every week we come into worship to tell a story, although the one true story that makes sense of all the other stories is similar to what we talked about at Christmas Eve. And if you stop and just look back at our culture, we are a culture that that devours stories. We don't like to read, but we devour stories. It's on TV and Netflix and... um, our kids love stories. I mean, they're, they're being t- taught to read. They're told to read stories. They read the same story over and over again. They're, that's their age. Um, say, let it go at any point in the day and at near any elementary school and you're gonna see what stories have just captured the imagination of these little girls' hearts, not just the girls. <laughs> um, if you heck, visit any other PCA church, there's a pretty high probability that someone will mention Lord of the Rings at some point. it's been the joke in our family. Bethany didn't come from a Presbyterian tradition. And it's just, it's a story that people love. And it's a great, great illustration. And one of the funny things is, is this is how we use stories, is that we use stories to try and make sense of our lives, to try and persevere, to try and sometimes just to escape, to get, get rid of, to step outside of the madness but also just to to put ourselves in their shoes, to to see that there is a world outside of me, and this is how other people deal with things. And that's that's what corporate worship is designed to do, to tell you the true story of the gospel, to help us week in and week out make sense of our our sin, to make sense of our suffering, to to re-enchant our hearts with the reality that this world is not all that there is. There's something more that God really has broken through in human history. And we need it week in and week out. I mean, the Bible makes this audacious audacious claim that its story with God as the hero and us as the villains is something we need to hear over and over and over again because it's true. And so that's what we do. You know the old hymn, tell us again the old, old story of Jesus and his love for us. Um, we're, we're called as Christians to be like our children You say, tell me again. You know, get to the end. Start over again. Read it to me again. And that's what we do. And so this morning, as we talk about God summoning us, why do we start our service with a call to worship? This is how the true story of grace works. It always begins with God speaking and calling to us, and we respond. All right. And so... <laughs> here's, here's the big argument I want to make for you this morning. I don't know if you think about what we do here on, on Sundays is this, this important, but really that gathered worship, corporate worship, that Christians coming together once a week on the Lord's Day is the ordinary and necessary way that God, God works on our hearts. As Americans, we want to put all the pressure on what we do individually with our devotions and it, this is going to be a both end conversation we do need both but the, the main way that God has worked throughout the history of the church to make well to to make himself to bring to himself children and to make them like Jesus is what we do is 52 weeks out of the year or 50 because of sickness you know just ordinarily as God's people gather together he meets with them and through the preaching of the word through the singing of the word through talking about God's word he changes us, right. so I'll say it again because I know it's not an ordinary way of thinking that what we do on Sunday morning is the ordinary and necessary way that God meets with us and the way He changes His people, and that really what we do here should give us power and and direction to our individual devotional lives. And so, I mean, this is what this is what we need week in and week out. When you get that devastating diagnosis, you know, that or some bad news in your family, or you're trying to make a life-changing decision. What should I do with my life? Or maybe you're just having God's been good to you and you're experiencing blessing. What we need week in and week out is God to come and say, I am with you through what we do on Sundays to wake us up. And if we're up here, Because everything is great. We need corporate worship to remind us that we're sinners. And we still do need his grace. And if we're down here because life is terrible, we need to hear the good news that God meets with his people where they're at, even in an ordinary place right here, right now. So, if you hang out here long enough, this is going to be a weird sermon because some of it's teaching them on why we do what we do, and it's also going to be pulling from from Peter on what... we don't make this stuff up on our own. It comes from the scripture. But you open your bulletin, you can see we have the call to worship. And that's why I've, I'm saying God summons us. And really, it's just so the, the S's all line up. But it's this theological idea that God is pulling, pulling towards us. He's taking the initiative. He's saying, come into my presence. That's what we read, read this morning. And it's echoing the great story that God always begins. He always takes the initiative in his relationship. So if you've started your annual Bible reading plan, you started with Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word, and God spoke, let there be light. It begins with him. You get to Genesis 3, man walks away, God begins, where are you? He's, he's pursuing you get to Exodus. God says, I heard their cry, and he, d- he just works out salvation in the background. He takes the initiative. You get to Ezra when God's people are in exile. Um, God says, He just moves Cyrus out of the blue to send them home. God speaks, He starts the process. And you get to the Gospels. I mean, when the time was right and nobody knew it was about to happen, the angels just exploded onto the scene, and, and God spoke. So, Mary, get ready. My son's coming. You're going to be his mother. So with all that, why do we need God to take the initiative? That's what, that's what Peter's going to help us with this morning. Why do we need God to speak to us first? Because if you go into any bookstore, they're going to tell you the opposite. You go to the spiritual and self-help section, it's all about how do you climb the ladder to get to God. And corporate worship is designed to say, no, God has come down to you in his son, and is right here with us right now. So I got two points. I wanna see that everyone worships in the darkness, but that God has called us to worship him in the light. So, here's how Peter uses this story, or tells the story of the gospel. He's using foreign uh, priestly sacrificial Old Testament language to describe the Christian experience. And I'll read it again. We're going to look at verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All right. I don't know if you realize this, but this language is meant to, to wake us up. It's written to people who are suffering. And P- Peter's using Old Testament language to encourage people who are just getting at, just getting beat up by life. They're, they're exiles, they're strangers, uh, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their homes, they've been scattered all across the empire. Uh, they're not, if mean, you read the letter to Peter, they're not being treated well because, because they're Christians, they're looked at, they're just sneered at. Why would you do things that way? Um, or even wor- in worst cases, they're actually being persecuted. Socially, sometimes eventually it'll be physically. You know, Peter describes their experience as, being, as a grieving through fiery trials, which is a powerful picture, that something is going on in this church's life, in these, these Christians' lives, that it feels like they're being burned up, that they're in a furnace. And so Peter turns around and says, look, you are a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belongs to God, and that He's called you out of darkness into His wonderful life. And Peter just starts out by saying, Remember what's true. It's very common to what we do on Sundays. It's a call to remember who you are, remember what God has done. It says, Let's talk about the true story of what God has done in Jesus Christ and, and the results of that. He has called you out of darkness and into His light. This is who you are. You are priests. Priests are all the way in. They have direct access to God. Uh, you are God's people. even though it doesn't feel like you're being blessed, you have the blessing of His presence with you so much that you actually rejoice. And so here's how Peter tells the story, and this is what I want to do this morning, is remember where we came from. God called you, if you were a believer, out of the darkness, into his marvelous light. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be in darkness? One, I think Peter's thinking of, of creation. That in the beginning, darkness was over the face of the deep, and then God said, let there be light. It's that kind of dramatic transformation. That at one point, all there was was darkness, and then God showed up, and there was light. And yet, the funny thing is, is Peter uses that word to describe the current world in which we live. Because he's writing Christians who people who just recently became converted and you know sometime in their lifetime, and they're turning around and looking back and say, You were in darkness, now you're in the light. Right? What is he talking about? Right? What does Peter mean by darkness? I mean, maybe you remember philosophy one oh one. You remember Plato's cave? I fell asleep in philosophy, but now it makes more sense. Right? Of of this whole idea that Plato saw the world as saying, we we can't see the world as it is. There's something else out there. And the way he tried to explain this to people was saying everybody lives in a cave in the dark. And that there's a light behind us, we know there's something. All we can see are shadows. And he, he wasn't a Christian. He just was looking at the world and saying, something else is out there we can't see clearly. Life is dark. We need something from the outside to break through to help us see the world as it is. All right, and so let's just run with that metaphor. What is it like to be in a cave? In the darkness. I mean, maybe some of you have been cave spelunking. All right, you get into a cave, and we're going to go in with your flashlights. This is something I got to do when I was in co- just after college. You go into a cave, you turn out the light, and it doesn't matter how close somebody is to you. In a cave, the darkness is almost suffocating. I mean, you can go like this. Somebody can run around. They can do anything. You can't see anything in the dark. You turn off the light. I mean, you don't know that there's bats on the ceiling. There's snakes by your feet. It doesn't matter. It's in the dark. You just can't see. It's oppressive. And Peter says, this is the image of conversion. This is where you were. This is where you came from. So just reflect with me. What is it like in the dark? One, I'm going to argue there's social chaos. If, if, if we had this church service in the darkness, right, in a cave, which there are caves in, in, in other parts of the world that have church, churches in it, they light it with candles. But if we turn out all the lights and I said, all right, I want you to stand up and everybody on this side of the room come to this side of the room and everyone over here switch here. I mean, how, how do you get from one side to the other in the dark? how considerate would you be of the people around you? (laughs) I mean, in in something like that, all you can do is think about yourself. And it it results in social chaos. Peter says we were called out of darkness. And one of the things that the scriptures repeatedly teach, that that the ways we acted apart from God, we did not have our neighbor's best interest in mind. It's all about me. Right? This this is what life is like in the darkness. All I know is me, and I'm going to take care about me. I would argue there's moral darkness. How do you know what's right and wrong in the darkness? Right? That if... Uh, I was going to bring my painting, and I forgot. But if I was... Ho- if you close your eyes and, and you're in the dark, and if I'm holding up a painting here of Rembrandt's prodigal son, even if you don't know what it is, it's this beautiful uh, ancient picture of the father the, the and father the story of the prodigal embracing his son who's just in rags. And it's a timeless work of art. None of us here, I don't think, can afford to buy it and put it in your own house. <laughs> how do you make the distinguishment, how do you just say, that is a much more beautiful and better thing than if, if your eyes are closed, than, well, in the 90s, Andre Serrano's uh, picture of uh, a crucifix dipped in urine. Right. How, do you, how do you make a, a moral statement of saying, this one's better than the other? Right. Or how do you distinguish between Disney movies and Fifty Shades of Grey? One of the things when Peter says, we were called out of darkness, he's saying, you were just doing whatever you wanted, the passions of your former ignorance, he describes it in chapter 1. He's saying, how in the dark do you tell what's right and wrong? It's starting to sound like our culture, is it not? You can say, I feel, I think, but then it's about me. And then really what I think Peter's getting at is, this is just the result of spiritual darkness, that that if with God is light and without God is darkness, and when you have light, you figure out what's moral, figure out what's beautiful, how to care for one another, it becomes clear you actually have a foundation to stand on because you can see what is true, what is beautiful, what is right. And one of the things that Peter's saying is you were called out of darkness. And if God is light and you're in the dark, what's that say about mankind's natural relationship with God? He's not even close. I mean, throughout Plato's illustration of the cave of the light being in the distance, it's just you are in the suffocating dark apart from Christ. And Peter grabs onto this Old Testament language to try and remind these Christians who know the Bible, have been taught the Bible, to say, This is what it means to come into his light. He's using priestly language, and the way this was pictured in the Old Testament, because they taught through pictures in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, was through the lampstand. You remember in the tabernacle where uh, you had, it was the the only people who could go in the tabernacle were, were priests, and the tabernacle was God's house, the place where he dwelled, and it was split into two parts. You had the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest could go once a year, and and he had a bell wrapped around his feet because if he did anything wrong, he would fall over dead. And they needed to know, and they would pull him out. And in between that, you had the altar of incense, which pictured the prayers going into God's presence. You had the lampstand, which looked like a tree, right, looking back to the Garden of Eden when God was with his people. But it was a light in the darkness next to the table where the priests would eat with God. Right? And so... This is what everyone in the Old Testament when they think of light and priests they think of the lampstand. That And what it pictured was God's presence, God's light in the darkness. Uh, the, the Hebrews would remember God walking with them in the desert through suffering. The pillar of fire by night. They remember their creator who said let there be light. And just Practically speaking, if you're going to go into God's presence, into the tabernacle, this thick cloth tent, if there was no lampstand, they wouldn't be able to see. It was this picture that with the light, you turn around and look, everything in the tabernacle was trying to paint a picture of what heaven was like. That the tabernacle was heaven come down to earth. And so it's all about light being connected to God's presence with his people. So you're starting to see it? See the connection here that... The Peter's saying you were in darkness, you had no, you weren't even close to God, but now He's brought you in. And it's not just one particular family that gets access to God. It's now all those who've come by faith to Jesus. They are all, you are all priests. And so here's here's what I want you to think about. If you're in the dark and God is light, how do you you find him? How do you come out of the darkness and into the light? How do you flip the switch, so to speak, to turn on the light? Because one of the things that happens, and people throughout history have always noticed this, it's not that... It's not that the those who are in the light are, are the only ones who worship, and those who are in the dark are those who are just living their lives. It's no, it's everyone's been worshiping. Everyone's trying to make sense of the darkness in their lives by grabbing onto something they find extremely valuable to bring light into their life, or trying to turn on the light. Right? So here's, for example, here's David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's somebody that our generation he's a not. He's written some good books. He's not. Nobody really knows what he believes, but, but he's writing to a bunch of college graduates, and here's what he says. It's really interesting because he's not a Christian. He says, you now, you new graduates are ready to go. Start your life. You have the freedom to decide what you worship. And he's, this is a secular college. He's talking to a bunch of people who don't, who don't believe in Christ, and a lot of people don't even care about God. He says, there's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the only choice we get is what to worship, and there's a compelling reason to choose some kind of God outside of creation to worship, whether it's Allah or Yahweh or the Four Noble Truths, because anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is life in the darkness. If you worship money and things, where you, is that, if that's where you get your meaning in life, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and, and sexual allure, you'll feel ugly. And then as you get old and age, you're going to die a thousand deaths. If you worship power, you're always going to feel weak and afraid, like you can't fit in. If you worship your intellect as being smart, you're always going to feel like a fraud. And the insidious things about these forms of worship is not necessarily they're evil or sinful, he's still talking. It's just that they're unconscious. It's the default mode. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more selective about what you see, and you're not even fully aware that you're doing it. It's a pretty powerful thing to say. And here's what he means. He's saying, "We all live in darkness." And when we're in the darkness, we have to figure out how to make sense of the darkness to try and find light. And if you don't choose something outside a God, and I would argue the God who is, it's going to eat you alive. And that <laughs> that, that we're going to be crushed by what we make our God. That life in the darkness, life has lived something for other than God. It's going to result in this moral and spiritual chaos that we see ourselves in our culture right now and Peter says that's where you came from once you did not know God once you were chasing all these things you had no idea you were even doing it it was the the passions of your former ignorance it's just the way you live life of course I'm going to try and climb the corporate ladder because that's all there is of course I'm going to live for the American dream right what else would I do of course I want to find somebody who will love me and and make my my life a Disney fairy tale come true this is the passions, the things we live for. And Peter comes along and says, that, that's darkness. So how do you escape it? How do you flip the switch on if we live in darkness? And Peter says God called to us. He broke in. He came to us. He, he took the initiative. He called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We need someone, something from the outside to show us who we are, and who this God is. And this is the second point, that everybody worships absolutely. <laughs> and we come to church on Sundays. We start our services with the call to worship to, to mirror the true story that God woke us up. At some point, we realized that what we were worshiping was destroying us and that we needed help. And the Bible says that's because God's been calling you. We have to come from the darkness into the light. Now, think about what that must be like. Maybe you can remember your conversion. It's a painful experience if you're used to the dark. You you don't know this with our kids. I mean, they love to make shadows and they run their face right up to the light in the flashlight. You know, if you're in the pitch black, suffocating dark and you cannot see, and someone takes a picture with a flash, right? You can't see straight. It's painful. That's that's what happened when Jesus came to earth. The light of the world, Jesus called himself. He he shines his light. He lived this beautiful life, this perfect life. He was God come in the flesh. And people didn't know how to deal with it. You know, they're just squinting at him. Who is this guy? It hurts. Remember remember the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark, the religious leader, the one who's supposed to be in the light. And there's there's some a metaphor there, a picture there. And where Jesus immediately turns to him and says, "Unless you've been born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God." You to the person who's extremely moral, who's better than most of the people in the tribes, or somebody that people would strive to be. He says, "You're in the darkness. You can't even see." You need to be reborn. You need a creation experience, God, to speak light into your heart to give you new life. And then Jesus tells the story. This is how John 3 goes, remember? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light because their works are exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so they can see that their works have been clearly carried out in God. Coming to the light's a painful experience. That's, that's Jesus' own words. You get to see yourself as you are, and it hurts. It's humbling. It's humbling. Because when God shows up, this is why we we prefer the darkness. I prefer not to see the things I've done wrong. I prefer not to remember the things that I'm ashamed of. And when you come into the presence of a holy God, somebody who's completely other, somebody who says, you can't even come into my presence unless somebody or something dies to pay for your sin, that hurts. And yet God calls us into the light to say, you need to see who you are. There's an Old Testament example of this, Zechariah chapter 3, the, the, Joshua, the high priest. You remember, he's standing before God. He's, Again, he's the religious elite. He's, he's the guy who's been commissioned to come into God's presence. And it says that he's standing in God's presence and Satan is right there accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The, the Lord has, who has chosen Jerusalem is rebuking you. And it says that Joshua was standing there covered in filthy garments. That as soon as Joshua got into the presence of God, Satan just said, look at him. He's filthy. He doesn't belong here. Look at what he's done. Look at all the ways he's failed. Look at the way even your, your high priest, the one you've chosen, the one you've loved, look at the way he's turned his back on you. Life in the darkness has stained him permanently. He can't rub it out. And yet God says, I want you to have that experience come into the light. So what do we do? How does does the light become attractive and pull us out of the darkness? Well, if you're you're thinking of this priestly language and you're in the tabernacle, all the priests would have to turn around and look at was, was the altar. Even on the altar of incense, it was dripping with the blood of the Lamb. And this whole thing just pointed to the day when God's people could stand in God's presence, be in the light, and have no shame. Uh, To to be in the light, to see themselves as they really are, and enjoy God's presence instead of trying to run back into the darkness for safety. It's pointing to Jesus, the light of the world, who came down into the darkness, not just to show us who we are, but to make God's light bearable <laughs> to where he shines on us and we're not destroyed. And the way he does it is, how do I don't want to put this, he, he works, he lives the perfect life. I mean, you see Jesus in the way he loves, the way he lives, he is a light in the darkness, an otherworldly way of living, the way he forgives his enemies the way he heals, the way he, he puts God first. I mean, he says, if anyone's going to come to the light and see if their works are carried out in God, he's really talking about himself. I mean, how, who else can stand in the light and say, I have done absolutely everything for God, my creator, when I lived in the darkness, and I preferred the darkness? And Jesus comes out, lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died. And he goes through, literally, I mean, this is, this is the judgment. Jesus goes through darkness so that we could come into God's light. I and mean, he, that's what it says on the cross, that darkness fell on the land, that he was being uncreated. He was being cast out of God's presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could wake up in a new day, have our eyes opened, have God see, look at us face to face. And what, what Jesus does for us, this is the wonder of the gospel. You think of Joshua, the high priest, worked his whole life to do this, and he's still filthy. This is where Jesus has taken the filthy clothes of Joshua, all of us. Because he had those clothes on, he was cast out in the darkness on the cross so that we might wear his clothes. Uh, the clothes of the priests who are pleasing to God without stain, pure and white. It's astonishing. When Peter says, you are a priest, a royal priesthood, he's saying, you've been brought out of darkness, you've been brought all the way into the very heart of God's presence. And his holiness is not going to burn you up. He's going to shine the light on you, and because of Christ. Well, we, we read it. God treats you like you've never sinned or never been a sinner. And that in Christ, with those clothes on, he shines the light on you and you are fully accepted. And it means he's going to see white and no stains. And that is all possible because God called called to you. Do you see this? This is how Paul described it. God, let's see, let's see if we can find this here. Second Corinthians 4. Six, that God who said, let there be light in the darkness to shine the light of the glory of the gospel in your hearts. He's shown you the face of the glory of God, the very face of God. You can look at him, but he shined it in your heart and you can see it and live. You see, this is why we start our services this way. God speaks to us. That we were in the darkness, we're more used to the darkness than the light. We need God to remind us that he's continually saying, come. We are reenacting the gospel story every Sunday. That God says, I have called you into my light, now believe me. Right? That, and when we come together on Sundays to worship, we are coming to worship the triune God. We come to, into the presence of God the Father, through the sacrifice of the Son, as the Holy Spirit is trying to show us these true things. And Peter says he's called you out of the darkness into his light. He's saying, remember, God God grabbed you and brought you in. You couldn't create light on your own. You couldn't find it. He came down to you. The way Westminster Confession describes it, it's the work of God's Spirit. This calling, he convinces us of our sin and misery and enlightens our minds, tells us about the knowledge of Christ. He renews our wills and enables us to embrace Jesus freely offered to us in the gospel. And the beginning of all that is that God says, look at my son, here's a light that you can bear. And here's a light that's actually attractive that'll pull you out and draw you in. And when you come in, you realize that you are a priest. We gather and worship as priests. Men and women. I don't know if if that's a bombshell to you. It should be. (laughs) Because in the Old Testament, women were not allowed to be priests. It was just men. It was only a select few. Jesus says, I have, through my work, made you a priest so that you might serve him and that your service is acceptable. (laughs) So, conclusion... Pretty simple. I would argue that the gathered worship is the way God wakes us up week in and week out. That when you've failed, you need God to say, you're a priest. Come. This is who you are. This is what your faith has accomplished. Come. Hear hear me call you out of darkness into light. And when you're in the midst of trials, you need God, his word. Spoken to us to say, wake up! This is the word. I am God. I am your Father. I am in control. I will work all things out for your good, even if you don't understand what that looks like. It starts with God's summons. All right, we need to see the One who will make all things new. Who says, "I am with you." All right. So, somebody asks you, "Why do you go to church every week?" Say, "Let me tell you about the darkness." And how God has brought me into the light. Let me tell you who God has made me. And I can't believe that he would give me that honor. that, That we are priests and we have the right, the privilege of the light of God's presence. And that's where we live our lives. And so we get to say, yeah, I fully expect God to be here every week by his spirit, that his light shines in the darkness. And it looks really ordinary, because we're ordinary. But God, God comes to re-enchant our hearts each each week through what we do, beginning with his call. And even now, as we come to the table, I pray you hear his voice. Let's pray. And Father, it's a... It's a humbling thing to start out and say, we need you to shine light on us because we can't even come on our own merits. And so I pray that you would, for those of us who have been believers, you would re-enchant, you would rekindle our awe at being brought in. And for those of you who do not yet know you are trying to make sense of the darkness and figure out who you are, we pray that they would see the kingdom of God, that you would cause them to be born again and to receive your grace, and that if they We're not sure what all that means, that we would see that the beauty of your light, your light shines brightest when it was actually extinguished in the death of your son. And so I pray that 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 beauty would draw us to you and we would trust you more in Christ's name. Amen.